Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Rob Ackerman. Rob is a playwright whose plays include Tabletop, which won the 2001 Drama Desk Award for Best Ensemble Performance, Volley Girls, which won the New York Musical Theater Festival, Best in Fest, Call Me Waldo, Dropping Gumballs on Luke Wilson, directed by Teresa Rebeck and produced by Working Theater at Art New York Off-Broadway, and Loyalty, which has been optioned by Without a Net Productions to be produced at the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. He has also been the property master for the Saturday Night Live film unit for over 25 years. Rob, that is a long list of stuff. I've been around a while. (laughs) (laughs) Super excited to have you on the show today. As we discussed, this is our first episode where we talk to a playwright. So as a writing show, we're really excited. Well, writing plays is a little bit like making wooden airplanes. It's craft and it's not necessarily always in demand, but a beautiful wooden airplane is something to behold. And it's my love. It's what I fell in love with when I was a kid and it never went away. I, when I tried to leave it or when I was gone from it for a while, I got super depressed. So it's the only thing I'm really, it's the thing that I am most comfortable doing and I love most. And so even though it's unusual, it's what I do. And you're based in New York City, right? Yeah. I okay. grew up in Columbus, Ohio and went to Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois for graduate school in stage directing because I, it didn't occur to me that I would be a playwright. I just knew that I liked plays and working on plays. And it wasn't until a bit later that I became a playwright, actually. It happened after a tragedy in my life and a young mother who um, took her own life and she was a friend and her. we all had little kids. My wife and I had little kids. And I, it's at that point that I started writing. So I was before that, I always loved plays and loved telling stories for the stage. But that's when I started uh, my first play. And what steps did you take to pursue a career in being a playwright? Where did you even begin to follow that path? It's funny. I, I, I went to an astrologer. And she said, and this is that after this tragedy, I went to an astrologer. This is how it happened. And she said, oh, man, you're a mess. Things are really bad for you. And I said, well, I know what I want to do. And she, what do, and she said, you better do it. And so I called these actors I knew from when I was a stage director. And I said, what if we did a play together. And they said, great, that'd be fantastic. And then I said, we're going to need a writer. They said, we don't have one. And then I started writing about the various stages of fucked upness of their lives. And they're like in their late 20s, and I was too. And I started writing about them. And uh, they were very gracious and said, sure. Yeah. And they liked the scenes that I was writing. And that became my first play. It was called Origin of the Species. And I sort of accidentally almost began writing about what was going on in their life and mine and these various stages of yearning that we were in and unfulfillment and premature midlife crises. And it became this play. And I put it up myself because that's what you do at the beginning. And I found a young woman to produce it and it went well. And then one of the producers from Saturday Night Live came 
And he said, I'd like to make this into an independent film. And I said, you're crazy. And I hung up on him. But then he called my agent, took a six-month option, and had the film made within six months. And that was the start of my writing career. Lucky. <laughs> Not a bad start. Not a bad start at yeah. all. Going back to, you know, you mentioned New York as where you're based now and where you started your first play. How important is being in New York City uh, to being a playwright? Obviously, there's a lot of playwrights in other cities, but how important is it to be here? I'm going to go ahead and say, because it's true, that it's really important if you want to be have a chance at being in the major leagues. I mean, it's something that William Goldman put in Adventures in the Screen Trade, his autobiography about starting as a writer. He said, if you want to write for the movies, you you should go to LA and if you want to write for theater, you should go to New York. And it's not that good work can't be done elsewhere. I mean, I uh, worked in the theater in Chicago. It has a vibrant and very creative theater community and I loved it and I did good work there and so do others. I mean, Tracy Letts uh, writes for Steppenwolf and one of his plays became a big, huge hit on Broadway. You can do it from other places. You can do it from Minneapolis, St. Paul. You can do it from other arts communities. I just feel like New York is, is kind of the epicenter of theater, and it's difficult and sometimes financially super stressful for a lot of us because it's much more expensive to live and write in New York than it is in a Midwestern city, where, you know, like where I'm from. But when you do work in New York, it gets reviewed in The New Yorker and The New York Times, and that really helps the life of the play. It also sometimes kills the play. So. You got to take the good with the bad, but I think <laughs> ultimately, you know, if you want to, if you want to have your plays uh, get out there, eventually you have to have them in New York. And why is it that Broadway or New York City specifically has always been the hub? Is there a reason why it has never branched off and found like a bigger base? In L.A., for instance, you mentioned Hollywood. Is there a reason why it hasn't moved to Hollywood at any point? Well, people in Hollywood think. There's good theater there. <laughs> but somebody said that New York is the capital of propinquity and profanity. Propinquity means, you know, everyone's all rubbing shoulders. You're always squished into subway cars and little lofts and lousy little skanky theaters that are <laughs> poorly, poorly ventilated and have really disgusting dressing rooms. That's all true. And that propinquity makes us, you know, solve problems and, and it, it's exciting. It's creatively exciting. And the profanity, no, no place is more profane than New York, and it does it does uh, loosen you up. It makes you, you know, you take risks and you see risky stuff getting done. You see, you see people breaking the definition of what's possible. Michael Jackson, Michael R. Jackson, had this fantastic show about being a fat black queer man. Nobody's ever done that before. What's inside the mind of a person like that? Only Michael, you know could write that and it, it was it was brilliant it's called a strange loop that happens more easily in new york than it does in other places unless of course you are nurtured by a great uh theater company that trusts you as you know as the case in steppenwolf that's an example they do work that gets to new york because they you know they have a tradition of doing that but i have to say it's eventually you're gonna have to i don't know why but you have to come to new york I guess it's just that it's 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 just, you just here you end up here. Tell us, we mentioned in your bio a long list of accomplishments and projects, but we haven't talked about what you're working on right now. Can you tell us what you're working on now? 
where it's at in the in the stages and when we can expect to see it. Well before the election of our current president, I started writing a play about uh, the Harding administration, basically listening to a Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, where he talks about Warren Gamaliel Harding, the last president from Ohio, my home state. And I thought, okay, Lin-Manuel did Hamilton. What was going on with, why did the nation make a decision, make such a horrible mistake? He won by the largest popular margin ever in American history, and he was a terrible, solipsistic, narcissistic, womanizing monster. And I, so I started writing that play, which had the title Harding because I didn't have anything creative. And eventually it became a play called Loyalty, which we did a little test production at the New York Theater Festival last year. And it went over really well. And it's, it's simply the story of this other administration and the mistress of the president, the attorney general of a president who really wasn't interested in governing and a very corrupt secretary of the interior. The, the president himself is not a character on stage. I was more interested in how things get out of control and who enables that, that process of things getting out of control. And I didn't mean it initially as an analogy for what's going on now, but people reacted to it really well. And there's, there's a lot of sex in it, so that's also good. I mean, it, 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 it ended up, you know, that, but how did that happen? I mean, it was, you know, you, you really aren't always driving the bus. You, a lot of playwriting is unconscious. And I guess if you look at the spelling of the word playwright, it's not W-R-I-T-E, it's W-R-I-G-H-T. My mentor, A.R. Gurney, told me that that's a very serious covenant with uh, the people who craft plays. Your work, it's, it's more like a piece of furniture. You kind of, you hone it, you, you, you find it. And you, you, sometimes you have to get out of its way, but you need to know, you have to have a sense of the craft and then, then let the play help craft itself. It's less, it's less literary than most people think. It's, it's more a matter of, of finding that story organically with a very intelligent organism in a room where everyone's alive and they're together. That part of it is what's really the most compelling and intoxicating. And that's why so many film actors gravitate at one time or another to doing theater, because you get the process of doing a play, you know, 25, 50, 100, 200, 300 times. You get to understand things with an audience in real time. And that's, I think, really good for all artists to have that experience. And it's certainly what attracts me most to doing theater. So we normally frame our episodes around themes. As I mentioned, we've never had a playwright on this podcast before, so I'm excited to talk about the process of how to write a play. What play would work best as almost like a, an example as we go step by step through the process? Something you've already done, something you're working on now? Well, you know, the old cliche about write what you know. For me, a play is always writing about something that I don't know, something that is aching, some unanswered question that I sincerely honestly can't solve. If, if it's something that I know or something about which I'm sure, then it's going to be a really bad play. So, you know, it has to be about something that bothers you. And, uh, for, you know, for instance, the Harding play, uh, Loyalty, what are the good and bad things about a loyalty? To what extent is loyalty a strength? And to what extent is it a great a great weakness and liability, and in fact, uh, a way that we can be corrupted. It's both. I mean, so 
that and so so you kind of have a sympathy with the devil at times and at the same time you realize that that's the devil <laughs> and uh, right now I'm working on a, a nascent play that is tentatively called pain p-a-y-n-e and it's about the first person to to earn a phd in astrophysics from harvard and she did this brilliant work and made she discovered that the composition of stars what stars are made of and then her work was taken from her by by men now are men villains when it was regard to women no they are not they are nurturing many men love and appreciate women but they're two really eminent scientists were villainous in this in this story and uh so i don't know the answer of, to this pl- to this play i don't know what's necessarily going to happen in each beat but that the ache is starting to take shape in in a play i don't know if i really want, i've never i don't know if i want to talk about it or not i'm <laughs> i'm a, i'm talking about it so i guess that I, and i mean maybe it is good to talk about what I'm doing right now, but that's the play that that's kind of growing as I as we speak. When you start off with wanting to write a play, where does the need for that come from? Is it usually your inner desire to express something or write a story? Are you commissioned to tell a story and told where to what elements to include? Is it all of the above? I hate to be silly. It's usually depression. It's usually misery. I mean, at its best, a play kind of needs to be written to to, sa- to save the writer. I think. I know that sounds like super. Really, that sounds really melodramatic. But like O'Neill's last plays. I mean, he wrote them sobbing. He those Long Day's Journey was written in this tiny, scratchy handwriting. I saw a first draft of it in the basement of the library at Yale. I mean, it was it wasn't something that he sat down and wanted to write. It's something that he absolutely needed to write, and it took him his whole life to get to the point of even beginning it. That sounds again a little histrionic and a little melodramatic, but I really think that when you go to a truly great play, you can feel the need of that play calling to you. Um, Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie, his guilt at at uh, abandoning his family, his desire to be an artist, and and his his messed up mother and his, his invalid sister. I mean, oh my God, it just breaks your heart. And I do think we think we go into the theater to laugh, but we really want to cry. I, I do believe that. And uh, when you see a great play, I just, you know, Hedda Gobbler, Hamlet, I, didn't, I just all over, there, there's always this kind of ache and pain and yearning on the part of the protagonist that, that seem to be very relevant to what's going on with the, with the playwright. Teresa Rebeck played Dig right now about a, a woman's guilt at having left her child in, you know, as a child being dying in a, in a car in a, on a hot summer day. I mean, that's a, you don't want to talk about that normally, but we sit in a dark room to feel things about really extreme situations. And, uh, and I think that, I guess, I guess it does have to come out of some suffering. Isn't that terrible? But that's what it is. Sorry. <laughs> and even the funniest plays are that. Even really, really funny plays are out of suffering. You know, the play What Goes Wrong, these people are trying to put on a play. They're doing their absolute best, and things go keep getting, keep breaking and keep failing. And that's how life is. You know, we're always trying to do our best, and we're always failing, and then we laugh. But it's really actually very sad. <laughs> 
at what point during the playwriting process, and I want to go separately through what that writing looks like, at what point do you know, okay, this play is going to get made, or I want to get this made? Are you ever talking to a producer? Do you have a particular venue in mind? Is this going through an agent that then gets it out there? Like, What's going through your mind as you write it, thinking the intention of where it's going to end up? You do have to think about things in terms of theater. You don't want to write plays that could just as well be movies, even though my first play did become a movie and independent film. <laughs> you want to write, you, you don't, you want to think in terms of a, of a room, of a, of a theatrical space. I think that's very important to at least have some idea that it can be staged. So in the case of Tabletop, I was doing what became my day job, working as a prop person, and I was working underneath, you know, a table by the camera, looking out and thinking, whoa, what if there were an audience watching this in this dark room where I'm working, this dark studio? This, this interaction is something that is theatrical. It, it's happening in real time in a circumscribed place, and it's full of a lot of tension and a lot of time pressure and a, and a lot of sort of absurd existential pressure. You know, it's a, it's a little absurd because it's selling, you know, a fruity drink, but there's a lot of money invested and a lot of people's careers on the line. So I thought, okay, that's, that's theatery. You know, that wants to, that would be better in a room with, with people, with just an audience than it would be as a movie. Um, I don't think about the commercial where, who's going to do it. And I was very lucky that very early in my career, A.R. Gurney, who's um, one of America's great playwrights of our time, he took me under his wing and found me an agent that was really lucky because he related to my work and I just sent it to him because we had the same dentist. I got super lucky. <laughs> luck is very good. Make some luck for yourself. But also, <laughs> if you live and breathe uh, this stuff and hang around, then you make the luck more possible. And also, if you declare yourself. When I was in graduate school, I saw a production of Madame Butterfly that was directed by Hal Prince, who, who just uh, passed away very recently. And I saw Hal Prince the next day. Uh, I was hanging lights in the theater at Northwestern, and I lowered the man lift, jumped off, and I said, you are a genius, and I want to work for you. And he said, no, it's cool, man. Come see me when you're in New York. And I went to see him in New York, and he said, what can I do for you? And I said, you can hire me right now. <laughs> and he kind of did. So if you are a young person interested in theater, and if you're a writer who's interested in theater, declare yourself. They actually need plays that are good if you know if you go to a theater that does work that excites you say so don't hesitate don't be shy i mean these they they pretend like they're overwhelmed by too many plays but if you if you relate to them and you feel that what they're doing is is really important and really necessary it's not wrong to say so as an artist it's really important especially in theater where there's not much you know there are not that many venues be very very open in your um in your love, with your love. I, I loved Hal Prince's work, and I said so. He was a big Broadway director, but he liked hearing it. And then when I went to show up, when I showed up at his office, I actually got to be his apprentice on a Broadway show. It helped me start my career. So that's one piece of serious advice is like, you know, you do need collaborators. And when you see people you like, tell them so. Tell them, hey, I like you. For those who don't know, is there a difference besides just geographic location between a Broadway play? an off-Broadway play? There's absolutely a definitive difference, and it is this. Broadway houses have more than 500 seats. At 499, you can call yourself off-Broadway and you can remain non-union. But within New York, 
once you get to that larger size house, larger than 500, then you're in the jurisdiction of Local One, which is a uh, the theater union. And so the stakes are higher. It becomes um, more of a commercial undertaking. It takes more money to be on Broadway. That's why you see a lot of corporate things happening there, but you also see decidedly non-corporate work. Uh, Hamilton was the creation of a bunch of friends from from college who put on In the Heights, and then Lin-Manuel read a book that excited him, and then he and Tommy Kale, a college friend, started developing the show, and a bunch of people who were in that show were also college friends. Chris Jackson was one of their friends. It can happen in a lot of ways, but Broadway is big bucks commercial stuff, and you can still get there from being a great artist, though. I mean, and Jill Furman, who produced uh, In the Heights and later Hamilton, she was the main creative producer. She believed in Lin-Manuel really early, and she, they were doing that show in a little 45-seat theater in the basement of the drama bookshop for years, inviting every producer they could to come see it in this cellar. I mean, this is a, this is a nasty little room. They were doing In the Heights over and over and over again until it got to be really good. And then they then it then it popped. And that was the beginning of this phenomenon that we know as Lynn Manuel Miranda. But he didn't come out of nowhere. He came out of a lot, lot, lot of practice and failing and getting better and failing. That's theater really, that's where the WRITHT of playwright comes from. It requires a lot of trying, failing, tweaking, trying, failing, and a lot of patience. And so you get to Broadway by being off, 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 and off, off, and off, and then suddenly somebody says, okay, let's go. It actually takes like 20 producers. By the time you're on Broadway, if you look at the uh, playbill, it's like 20, 25, 30 people, each of whom is raising a lot of money. It takes a lot of money now, but you can't really aim for that when you're starting to write a play. You just do a little play and hope that, that the snowball starts to get larger and more and more producers stick to it. We can't control that, but you can hope for it. So you mentioned producers. What's the relationship between a playwright, a producer, a director? Walk us through kind of those different roles. And do they ever overlap? Does a playwright ever direct or produce? Playwrights do direct their own work. And some really good uh, writers I admire very much do it. John Patrick Shanley, who wrote Doubt, uh, directs his own work. Teresa Rebeck just directed in addition to my play, she directed a, a play of her own at Dorset Theatre Festival. As somebody who studied stage directing, I never want to do it because I really value, I really value the director's input, uh, not just in terms of putting the play in space, but also in terms of dramaturgy, in terms of craft. Having, having one of America's greatest writers direct my play really helped the play become better. That, this is a play called Dropping Gumballs on Luke Wilson. That play was it grew into uh, a better play with, with the director's eye and the director's distance. I really value that relationship, and it's been mainly a lot of wonderful women who directed my plays, and Neil Patrick Stewart, who directed uh, Folly Girls. But I, I've, I have uh, been really lucky to have collaborated with so many good directors. And as far as the producers, the best are nurturing, and then Many of the best are just complete jerks, but they are they do amazing stuff. They, you know, I think that Scott Rudin directs. I mean, he he produces some of the things I most admire. But I hear he can be a little bit uh, feisty at times. But you know, if he were going to produce one of my things, I, he has great taste. He 
I, I, and he does a lot of great theater, Book of Mormon, To Kill a Mockingbird, so many really important plays and, and musicals. And then, you know, Moneyball. I mean, come on, he's, he's a great producer, but I haven't uh, worked with any of those like kind of giant personality producers in my theater career. I've been lucky to work with ones who get it done and, and, uh, and take good care of me. So going back to the actual writing process, let's take it from the top. You decide that you need to express a feeling and you say, I'm going to write this play. Obviously, I'm assuming at any given time, you might have a few different ideas. How do you decide to tell that particular story? And then what are the first steps you take to kind of start outlining it and working on it? For me, early in my career, I just I wrote a lot of uh, little sketchy things. You know, Origin of Species was really intersecting stories of just sketches of different of just different characters. It began with a lot of monologues. At the beginning of your career, you you write these monologues, you write these little confession scenes, you write these little sketchy things. As I got more involved and got to be a better craftsman, it became it became more about. Uh, letting a play marinate and letting a play bubble up over time until it finds its, its shape. In the case of Dropping Gumballs, it was a documentary play about, about an actual day in my life where a bunch of weird things happened with, a, with Errol Morris and Luke Wilson and, 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 and people on set doing things that were confusing. And it took me a while to figure out the shape of how that would work as a play. So it's sort of a combination of sketching scenes and writing those scenes in a legal pad, and at the same time thinking in terms of uh, in terms of what and therefore and therefore and therefore and therefore of that narrative action that, that uh, propels the story. It's a combination of letting things happen and making things happen. Hope, but whenever I try to direct the story, whenever I try to control the story too much. I really end up hating the play and then putting it away. So this is why many of my plays take like six or seven or eight or nine years to get done. You don't want to, if you, if you push them, then they start to feel fake and the audience tends to get that right away. You can't fool an audience. They're, um, you, they're really smart. They, they, they're, they're incredibly smart. A bunch of people in a room become so smart. It's, it's really annoying. So you, you, know, you think you've got it and you do a reading and then you find out, no, I don't. I'm telling too much. And then you learn. Uh, we, we do a lot of readings in, in playmaking where you will get a script to a point where you like it. You will put it in a room at the Dramatist Guild or somewhere and you'll hear it in that, in that space. And then you'll find out, oh man, okay, that worked, but ooh, that didn't. And then you do it again and you do that again. And everyone does that in theater. That, and that's why, you know, there's a tradition of trying a play out of town, you know, doing it in New Haven or Boston, or that's the classic, the Broadway, they would do those and do the, they'd be out of town in New Haven and Boston or Hartford, and then they would do it a few different places and then bring it into New York City. The classic book about that process is by Moss Hart. It's called Act One, about, about how you learn, how do you learn to make the play work? And it's, he was working on his first play with a veteran, uh, George S. Kaufman, and they were, you know, you'd think, you would think they would get it sooner, but it just took them forever to figure out how to make the play work. If it were easy, then it wouldn't be as much fun, though. I mean, it's really hard. It takes, it takes me years to get, to get it right. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? 
Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And at what point does it become final? At what point do you say, okay, now every time it's performed, it's going to be exactly like this. So there's a consistency for the people who might want to come back and watch it again and for it to be the same thing. Uh, I mean, when you've got... Uh... With Tabletop, for instance, it took a while. I didn't quite have the ending early in the early in the preview process. You kind of know when it's locking up, when it's locking into place, and then the actors. Then once that all gets kind of, it's like it's once the spine gets aligned, then you can be an athlete. And when so you sort of feel it, and and it's also process involves your actors that you can you can you can see where it stops sounding like somebody saying lines, and it just sounds like. Two people having a having a real moment, a real moment of like, "fuck you, kid," and like, "hey," <laughs> you know. Then you're like, then it's like, whoa. I, then you didn't feel like I didn't I didn't write that. That's when it's good. When it feels like you didn't write it. I mean, it's, the goal is to make it seem like nobody wrote it, and and it's just stuff that's happening up there. And that's true in in, in film too. That's true in in TV, but but it's really true in theater because uh, you, you know you're it's it's happening in real time. So. The audience calls book BS collectively, you know, if they, if they, if they feel it is BS. So there's obviously a script involved in the playwriting process. We've talked to a lot of screenwriters. How does that differ both the format of the script for a play and the process of writing a play versus a screenwriter? Plays seem to be a lot of dialogue. But some of my favorite writers, Annie Baker, um, you know, uh, of the people who are working now, they don't. It's a lot of things just happening in, in uh, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't have to be so much dialogue. We did the idea, you know, usually we'd say, oh, plays are just a lot of dialogue. No, the plays are things happening in a room. That's the real difference, right? I mean, it's, so it becomes a matter of finding out what's happening and what leads to what and where we're going and, and how it's going to reach some kind of catharsis and how we're going to let, how we're going to, kind of get out of there and and end and where we're going to end when you find all that that's that becomes a script and then then as i say in performance the cool part for everyone in the cast is that they then they become like a, a good middle infield on a on a 
baseball team. Then they become really good at picking up cues from each other, and they learn how it works on a given on any given night. And it becomes, you know, it becomes cool. I mean, if you were to see a play a couple of times in its run, you'll you'd see that there that it evolves. It evolves, but. When you get to the point of, well, we're doing this play and it's getting produced, and that, at that point, you've got a script that's pretty solid. And usually they won't, you know, you don't get to that point unless you've done your own workshopping. So if you're a writer and you want to write a play, do readings and readings and readings and get, and get it to the point where you know it works. Then if you can get it to that point where you really are sure that it works and the actors are like, this works, then you won't even, the producer will find you. For me, when my plays are getting to be good, I know that somebody's, I kind of know that somebody's going to do them. What is your role when the play is actually going on as a playwright? Let's say you're not directing or producing yourself. For films, I know sometimes the, as a screenwriter, you might not have much say anymore. Is a playwright still heavily involved in the process once the play is up and running? Heavily involved. That is maybe the single biggest difference between film and television and actually, no, you know, some shows, like some TV shows, like Friends, for instance, that was like a play. Those writers were full on in control of that show as it was being done. So, but, but most TV shows, they don't want you around on the set while you're, <laughs> and most movies, they, they will kill you. They just want you to be gone. They don't want you to be there at all. But with, with theater, you get to be very heavily involved every, all the way through tech, all the way through when it's, when it's, when you're previewing the show. And I love that so much. It's it's the uh, it's the real crowning glory of it. And you know, in other places like that is, is Saturday Night Live. The writers get to be very, very much involved in the in the uh, in the in the creative process right up to the minute that this thing is going on. And that's because what is more theatery than Saturday Night Live? It's 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 happening live, right in a room. So I guess it's the most analogous to to doing theater, but. You know, if you like to be involved as a writer in the right down to the wire, it's it's theater is a good place to be. It it doesn't pay very well though. <laughs> At what point emotionally do you move on from a play? At what point are you starting to think, okay, what's my next play? What's my next gig? How do you get that next gig? Often I've got at different times different ideas and germs of plays start to bubble blah, bubble up and you you keep them. Uh it is very healthy and good to be thinking about the next one as you're doing one but for me it's when the real the bullets are flying and we're really about to go up it's very it's hard for me to do uh to be working on the next one the window of opportunity for the next one kind of presents itself and i also think it's really important to like keep those germs of plays around i often write 10 minute plays for uh, little theater companies like core artist ensemble or there was a theater company called At Hand, uh, I, I write, you know, they would put on evenings of short plays. And a lot of times, or at least sometimes, those short plays would grow into, a germ, it would be kind of a thing that would start to grow into a full, full length. I have one right now called Super Egos that is a story of like a guy waking up in some girl's apartment. He's not sure how he got there and he's super hungover and he's kind of trying to remember whether or not he hooked up with her and then there she is and they're trying to make coffee. And then it turns out that his the voice is in his the voice in his head, his superego is 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 there. It's like a woman. The woman who's like talking about how you know he has to get to work and he's messed up and he's hungover. 
and then he walks out of the room and then she has a voice in her head and it's a gay man. And, you know, so that play began out of a little tiny play that I wrote for a little theater company and then now it's growing into a full-length play. So I guess the, the play calls you and I, I often have as many as three or four that are various uh, stages of growing. So that and sometimes they, they call and then it's time for me to go pay attention to them. That's how I do it. I don't know how other people do it, but I always ha- I, I, that's how I do it. I, I have these germs that, and I keep them and I look to them and I nurture them as best I can, but then I have to wait and turn, give them a little time to grow. So I think it's a good way to do it because then you don't put too much pressure on the play and maybe something will happen that'll, that'll give that play a chance to get the full light and air to be a, a full production. So sometimes plays are adapted from other sources. They're not necessarily original ideas. Maybe they're, you know, based on a Wizard of Oz or, you know, that kind of thing. Is one better than the other? Is the adapted play looked down upon in any way? Well, To Kill a Mockingbird was looked down upon by the Tony voting committee, but it's doing better business than any other play on Broadway, <laughs> and it's going to make a mint for, it, for everyone. I feel like there's a reason, there has to be a reason for the play. There's a reason to do To Kill a Mockingbird now. And Aaron Sorkin's script is so brilliant because he's giving a voice to Calpurnia and to Tom and to the African-American characters who are really not given a chance to speak and tell their stories in the, in the novel. And that's enough of a reason to, to do it, you know, and, and also he is showing more nuance and you know some people are upset by that you know but i i found it to be really powerful the stage adaptation of that and i felt like there was a reason to do it i have never done an adaptation but i have definitely done plays that have um been inspired by events and and people from real life that feel like they they want to they want to be heard and I think it's a perfectly good reason to do a play. As far as those aspiring playwrights out there, what would you suggest if they're looking to get their foot in the door, so to speak? Should they just start writing and keep writing? Should they start networking with producers? What's the best way in, so to speak? You can send your work to the Lark Play Development Center, which is its mission is to find emerging writers and to nurture their work. And they have a thing called Playwrights Week that you can submit. And they have a literary committee that considers the work that they, they get. There are resources for playwrights. Uh, there's the Playwrights Center in Minneapolis. There are, uh, it's page 73, I think it's called, which also nurtures new writers uh, in New York. And that they nurtured uh, A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson, and they're very proud of it. There are, if, if you start to... Uh, to snoop around, you'll find that there are organizations dedicated to the development of, of new uh, writers and new voices. We really need to hear um, from new, diverse, young, older who haven't been heard. We, uh, we, want, we all want to see good stories told. We all want to sit in the dark and uh, be taken somewhere we haven't been. Um, Marcia Norman said that a play is like a carnival barker saying, hey, come over here. Take a look. Look at over here. Come on, look behind this. You want to see something you've never seen? Look at this. He's right. That's what it is. And so if you've got something to, if, if you've got characters bubbling up that are 
that are interesting and that are about things we haven't seen or heard before. Take heart and find those resources. I, I can't recommend The Lark highly enough. They've been fantastic for me and for a lot of writers. And they're um, really responsible, responsive people there. So that's a shout out to them. But there are other groups like that in LA and in the Midwest and uh, even in New York. They say there's two types of actors, theatrical actors, film actors. What separates those sometimes is the style in which they're acting. Sometimes film is a little bit more understated and theatrical is theatrical. It's a little bit more out there and, and loud and wild. Do you write dialogue with that in mind or does that not necessarily affect the way you think about it? I generally write plays that I consider to be fully naturalistic, like just the stories of people messing up and going through hell. And I don't write like, nah, 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 nah. I don't do that kind of, <laughs> I don't, it's not, it's not how I, I think. That said, I wrote a play that was commissioned uh, for American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And it was a play about a girls volleyball team called Volley Girls. And then I sent it to Tommy Kale, who directed Hamilton. This was before he directed Hamilton. And I said, I think this one is a musical. And he said, it absolutely is. Like the next day. And he said, "You, I know the director. And his co-director from In the Heights, Neil Stewart, said, I want to do this as a musical. And when it became a musical, it got bigger. It got, there were people singing. But for me, they were singing about what they felt and what they needed and what they wanted and, and who they adored and, and, uh, and how scared they were. And yeah, they're singing, but I feel like it, it passed the test of like not being, yeah, nah, nah, nah. it was just, it was just, I need to sing because I need to sing this. I need to tell you, you are beautiful when you play and stop doubting yourself because you're an amazing woman. I, you know, when, when, you know, if a song like is, is, is being sung and that's a song, but that's something I would say if I were in love with a, girl and I was a kid, I'd say, maybe you're an amazing person. You don't see it. You, how can you not tell how incredible you are? I, I would have said that. So, you know, I mean, I don't go for the histrionics, but sometimes there are, the feelings get big enough to sing. So, and I have enjoyed working on musical theater. I do. It sometimes comes off to the, you know, as, as, as you know, a little much, but if you suspend your disbelief as in anything, it's, uh, you can be moved by it. And if you're a writer or playwright who wants to write a musical, but you're not a songwriter, where do you go for that? Well, again, I, I mean, it sounds, I've just been really lucky, but between Tommy Kale, you know, I told you about the, okay, Tommy Kale worked in the drama book shop with Lynn manuel and with Eli Boland, with Sam Foreman. All these aspiring writers worked at the, at the drama book shop, which is now temporarily defunct, but it's supposed to come back. But they all, all these guys that wanted to be writers and directors and actors were working at this bookshop and they ended up being the ones that composed the music and the lyrics for my first musical. So I would say, go to the drama bookshop and meet those guys, except they, they're not there anymore. But if <laughs> there are places, there's the BMI workshop, which is a very famous uh, place. That's where Bobby Lopez, who wrote Book of Mormon and Avenue Q, he started there. If you want to write musical theater, find out what the BMI workshop is and uh, try to get involved with it in any capacity as a, as a pianist, as a lyricist, as a making the coffee. It's the place until they reopen the drama bookshop and they put a little theater in the basement of it again, which really was um, kind of a miraculous thing. 
man, it makes me, you know, I, I, I guess the fact is theater gets done in really disgusting little backwaters by people who all care about, about doing it and making it work and are willing to do it for nothing for quite a while. And that's just the, what it takes. It, it takes a lot of, of, uh, of sacrifice and, and skankiness for you to do something good to get to be at the point where you're saying things that are, you're saying you're doing it well. And you're, you know, getting good enough to have other people come and see it. Are you ready for a few bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions? I love seemingly random things. Love it. <laughs> All right. The first one is, you wrote a play called Dropping Gumballs on Luke Wilson. How many times have you dropped gumballs on Luke Wilson? I dropped gumballs on Luke Wilson. I'm going to go with 53 times. In one day in January of 2010, but I hit him on the head with his big hard gumballs uh, three times, uh, and it hurt a lot. And he said only three three words to me: "I hate you." That's what he said. <laughs> uh, it was a weird circumstance where Errol Morris was directing this commercial, and for some reason we had to use real gumballs, which were a metaphor for the lies that Verizon was supposedly telling. It was a during the telecom wars, and that was what was happening. It seemed surreal and weird, but I swear that's what happened. And so it became a play about the weird things we do to each other because of uh, resentment and ego and frustration. And, uh, you know, I, I, and about the fact that we really should be taking better care of each other, but we don't. So I dropped, I did, I didn't hurt. I didn't give I didn't give Luke Wilson a concussion, but I was concerned that I might. <laughs> and he told me he hated me. <laughs> he's I don't know I like I, he seemed like a nice guy. He was not a, in the best point in his life, but uh, it was not. I I don't think it was his best. It was favorite day. I uh-huh. think he was. <laughs> <laughs> in regards to Saturday Night Live, we mentioned that you are the property master and have been for a little while. What's the correlation and the similarity between that role? And your role as a playwright? Well, being a property master means you have to solve whatever problem uh, they present you. And it's always writers who are inventing these problems. You know, Kellyanne Conway is in a sewer and uh, she's, you know, the Kelly Wise from Stephen King's It. And I have to make, uh, I have to make a sewer that, that uh, Kate McKinnon is in. But then I also have to shoot the exterior of the of the of the sewer. So actually we have to make three sewers and I have to pour water down the sewers while Kate McKinnon is in the sewers. And then I also have to make diluvial rainfall and I have to make a little paper boat float down the gutter. I have to solve all these problems and I have to create all these problems and I have to put Kate McKinnon in this, all these problems and not electrocute her. And that's a little bit like writing a play. You know, you kind of, you, you create a world of problems whether it was with gumballs or sewers and water and rain, and you figure out a way to come out the other side and solve them and then make something uh, cool. So I have been problem solver for SNL for a long time during the period when Adam McKay was the head writer. You know, he's the guy that wrote um, The Big Short and Vice, I think Talladega Nights and Anchorman too. I mean, he's always these cool, interesting writers, but at the time they're just these schmucks who are trying to make me do are asking me to do really difficult things you know like we had to make for this year for instance we had to make 
uh, oversized appliances for men, you know, with Jason Momoa. So, like, I had to make a gas-powered riding vacuum cleaner so that he could vacuum his house. And, like, I had to figure out how to make that and not have him get killed by gas fumes inside a living room. And then I had to make a six-foot-tall dishwasher, I mean, a washing machine, clothes washer, and a gas-powered dishwasher. I had to do all this in one day. So I guess I'm a problem solver and problem creator and... And I interface with a lot of writers who are asking me to do the impossible week after week. All of that's sort of similar to writing a play, isn't it? At least it's all craft. <laughs> I mean, it's all definitely W-R-I-T-H-T. It's play. It's, they're playing and I'm writing when it comes to SNL. There it is. If you could ask <laughs> any of our future writers a question, what would you ask? Do you really want to do this? Do you love this with your whole heart? I mean, are you willing to fail and fail and fail? And I hope you are. I really, really hope you are because, first of all, you know, when you come to a big chasm jump, it's not that far to the other side. Just do the thing. Fail. Fall on your face. If you do it a bunch of times, you really get to like it. You get to be into it. And so I guess what I'm asking you, prospective writers, is um, please, you know, please keep trying. Please don't give up. And Know what it's like when it's working. Get get a sense. Listen, listen, listen. It's a matter of listening really hard. And are you willing to listen for years as you figure out um, how to do this? It, you gotta really. You, you really do have to uh, have to wait it out. It takes a while unless unless you're like preternaturally gifted, which no one is, man. Not e- I mean, even Lin Manuel. It took him years and years in a basement before he was able to get to be the super famous. You know, Hamilton writing Lin Manuel. Are you willing to be that patient? And I hope, really, really hope that you are. It's the most, for me, the most important lesson of my life was patience. So normally we ask that question back to you. In that case, I would ask, you know, are you willing to be that patient? But you have been. So um... I am, but I'm still super <laughs> impatient. It's, I, 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 you know, I say, oh, I'm patient. I am not. I'm really, I'm really impatient by, by nature. And so I, I have to keep relearning my, that, that, that lesson. And, um, I also have to keep asking myself, you know, you, you keep asking yourself what an answered question do I, do I still want to uh, answer? And, you know, that, that takes, um, that takes uh, vulnerability. It take, takes making yourself ridiculous, you know, and then, it, and then you have to get past it and, and, and keep going. Eventually, you know, everybody's a mess. Everybody's just a big old mess. So uh, if you can make your... Uh, you know, if you can bring your own messiness forward, it will, it could be really helpful to people. That's a good way to, that's a good way to trick yourself into writing. It's like, oh, I'm so fucked up, but maybe everyone else is fucked up in a similar way. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that, it's worked before for many other, other theater and artists and artists of all kinds. And for a playwright, you're obviously already successful and doing really cool things. What's the end goal? What's the best outcome? What do you want the most out of this career? I just want to work again and again and again. If I could have my ideal thing, it would be just like a little theater where I could make play after play after play. Now, there's a dude in um, England called Alan Akeborn who he wrote a book called The Crafty Art of Playmaking, not writing, playmaking. And he does that. He just write, He just makes play after play after play, and it's a lot of fun for him. And every once in a while, one will come, will go elsewhere besides his little theater. 
not in London, but a little small town. He just, he just gets to work a lot. That would be my wish would be to have, to be able to go through the process of, of doing this again and again with pleasure. That's, you know, that's, and, and, you know, you say that I'm successful, but it never feels like I'm succeeding. I never feel like, wow, I nailed that one. <laughs> it just, I just never, I don't think I've, well, I, Volley Girls a little bit, but that was mainly because I was turning into one of these, I, I was, I was losing my mind. Musicals, you definitely lose your mind. So you, I was sort of empathizing with the characters, these, these girls and, and they're, they're overcoming their, their fears and they're, overcoming their awkwardness and adolescent talks. So I, for a moment during Folly Girls, I felt like, well, that was pretty good. But most of the time I feel like, oh, God, Rob, you suck. That's most of the time. Most of the time. That's how it is. Yeah, every writer, the art all you... Well, I don't, I believe there are writers who say yes and writers who say no. And it's, and it's, and it's through all their work. And some very famous, very much lauded writers are, no, are, na- are to me, they are naysayers. I don't want to mention any names, but like Updike and Saul Bellow. Those guys were like, I'm the writer and you guys aren't the writer and deal with it. And I am not that kind of writer. And I like writers who say yes. I like freaking Steinbeck. I like Richard Brodigan. I like Tim Egan. I like, I like, I like writers who welcome you into the, in, in theater. I love Willie, Tennessee Williams. He was a mess, but he was, he was definitely a writer who said yes. I just like the yes. The, I like the ones who, who say, Come on in, man. It's the water's fine. You you write some stuff here. You know, I I, I don't know what I'm doing either. That's, that's what I like. So if you're not like, if people are saying negative things to you, just go listen to somebody else who isn't. Somebody, go listen to somebody who says yes, whatever your yes happens to be. And that goes with how, with what you read too. I mean, uh, I read the people I, I love and that inspire me. And the people who are basically saying, I'm smarter than you, so you shouldn't write. Then I'm like, okay, well, Fuck you. Love it. Um, the last question. Drum roll, please. Harry, could you please do the honors? All right. Did you have fun today? I had a really good time. It was really we fun. Amazing. I hope you guys did too, and I hope there's something that you can use here. The whole uh, thing uh, can be used. The whole well, thing. Well, it was really fun. And-, and we hope that our audience is inspired by this. Again, Really cool to talk how to be a playwright 101, so to speak. And thank you for our entry-level questions. But we really appreciate you. No, they were wonderful questions. They were great questions. And and I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Court. And you guys are great. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>